This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films or films on streaming platforms and connects them to films from days gone by, either through their genre or perhaps the director or maybe some of its stars. And uh, this week, we're going to take a look at Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, and also, in particular, at two of its legendary stars, Michelle Yeoh and Tony Leung. My name is Stephen Cook, and I am a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we're going to find out more about this latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and some amazing stars and their careers right after this. So here on Lens Me Your Ears, we are talking about the incredible career of Michelle Yeoh and Tony Leung, who find themselves in this new Marvel Cinematic Universe blockbuster. And, uh, you know, I remember Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, as the comic was known, back from when I was a kid in the 70s. And I knew, I mean, I I know, I recognize now how problematic it was. You know, he was an Asian action star, uh, sort of Bruce Lee-inspired at the time when... Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, extremely extremely Bruce Lee-inspired. But, uh, you know, written by white guys. And so there was there were a lot of issues going back to those comics. But what I remember about them and what I liked about them is is the fact that he was kind of a super spy. And that was the the thing about the comic book that grabbed me because I was also, you know, a James Bond fan and and I was into spy movies and and Shang-Chi was kind of had this brooding intensity to go along with his martial arts gifts and espionage storylines. He called them games of deceit and death. And uh, he was part of the sort of super cool, capable commando team, including characters like Liko Wu and Clive Reston and someone named Blackjack Tar. Uh, but he was always the center of the story with his ongoing mission to bring down his evil father. Now, I'm not going to suggest that all the changes in the cinematic adaptation are a disappointment. Sing Shang-Chi's dad in the comic was a racist stereotype. So it's, it's nice to see that that's not the case here. And what we have is three of the key creatives directing and writing this movie are Asian American. So it does bring, I think, a personal touch and a different perspective to the first MCU blockbuster with an Asian protagonist. I I mean, I enjoyed Shang-Chi just to get that out of the way. I enjoyed the film, even though it felt very different to what I liked about the comics. I, I, I thought there was a lot of exciting sort of Jackie Chan or Jet Li style martial arts mayhem and epic Chinese fantasy. But I would say that There are some elements of the MCU, I guess, formula that are starting. I'm getting worried because they are, I feel like the plot structure is getting a little predictable in a way that after 25 movies, I'm starting to be able to tell you what's going to happen, you know, after the first act and the third act in a way (laughs) that is, and maybe we've just seen too many of them, but uh, I am, I, I did find it a little predictable. We have seen a lot of them. Because <laughs> we have on this show, we've talked a lot about about a bunch of them. Yeah, and I, I guess this one at least does have kind of its own personality and its own flavor, and and that's to be commended for that. And I think that Marvel was trying to do something a little bit different here, and at least until 
they're not at some point in the film. And, uh, you know, there are connections to other parts of the Marvel universe sort of scattered throughout the film as, you know, is, is their want for continuity. And, but I, I, I do get that feeling like, especially as far as like the big climax goes that, that, uh, you know, maybe they could have taken a different tack or, or maybe humanized that aspect of the film a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I, I find the the pluses outweigh the minuses, at least with this film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it for the most part until we get to something that, you know, the, the finale that's supposed to be exciting, but just feels like been there, done that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think maybe there were opportunities to do something a little more unique with this property. But I think for what we got and uh, maybe with what we've come to expect from Marvel, I think, uh, you know, it's it's probably about as good as we could have expected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just not taking the kind of risks. I mean, and I, I you know, the more expensive, there is a formula that the more expensive a film is, the fewer risks it's going to take. At the same time, I do recognize that this is a big deal to have uh, an Asian, all Asian cast, almost all Asian cast uh, in this film, driving it forward and, and led by a Canadian, Simu Liu, who is terrific, plays Sean. He works with his best pal, Katie, played by the Amazing Aquafina, who every time I see her, I'm amazed at at her range. She can go from the farewell to this. You know, she just does a lot of great work. And they're uh, San Francisco valet. They park cars. But her family criticizes her for lack of ambition. He's got a hidden family that no one knows about. His father is Zhu Wenwu, played by Tony Leung in, I think, his first Western film. Like, that blows my mind that he's never been in a Hollywood film before. <laughs> yeah, never. It's Considering the length of his career. It's it's pretty astounding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he is an immortal criminal overlord. Back in China, he's the wielder of the mystic Ten Rings, the source of his agelessness and his superpowers. Now, Sean's mother, Fala Chen, was this other dimensional warrior. And Sean has been in hiding in the U.S. for the past decade from his scary dad. But when these assassins from the Ten Ring Army show up, including the awesome Razor Fist, all of Sean, a.k.a. Shang-Chi's secrets come out. And, and then he, that sends him across the Pacific to Macau to find and warn his sister, who has also been hiding uh, on the run from their father. This while Katie, the Aquafina character, insists on going along with him. So yeah, the, the film is broken into these sort of two halves, the first modern world segment, lots of action sequences, and then the later fantasy world segment with the reintroduction of a a supporting character from an earlier Marvel movie that I wasn't in a huge rush to see again. But there he was. Fortunately, he's used sparingly and mostly as comic relief. And he's kind of paid for his crimes, I guess, (laughs) against common sensibility. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. The film is kind of thematically about... It's a coming of age film about people who are in almost 30 and they're just not achieving, they're not really achieving, I guess, their potential. And they're sort of trying to find what that is and take risks. And uh, and that's a that's an interesting sort of storytelling trope. I, I was down with that. And I really enjoyed how Liu and Aquafina have this great chemistry. But the film completely sidesteps the question of romance. They just say, oh, we're just friends. And then they leave it at that. And that is unusual for any kind of movie, really, that you've got two characters of the same age, you know, not not connecting in that way. And it, it suggests that it makes me wonder whether one of the characters might be gay and they just didn't want to be explicit about it. But, uh, you know, 
I, 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 uh, I really like them. I wanted to see more scenes with them. And this is something that comes up again and again in MCU of them just talking and getting to know each other without having to fight or run away from a threat or something. You know, I, I think it's, it's telling that a trip to the karaoke bar is a highlight of the movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you think about Tony Leung? I mean, he brings so much to this film. And I mean, this is true as we're going to talk about his other films. He is a remarkable presence and has his incredible range, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he is, he's got gravitas and spades. Yeah, he does bring this grounded sense of import or something to, to the film that, that maybe we haven't even really seen in a Marvel film before. He's certainly, in a lot of ways, maybe one of the most tragic of villains and uh, the most sympathetic of villains that we've seen, maybe the most complex villain in the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe to date. And uh, he, he's he's such a presence on screen. And, and and that just speaks to his experience in front of the camera, I think, that he he can underplay so beautifully and and yet express this uh this world of emotion with with you know barely any gestures or expression at all and you know i think that speaks to the kind of films that he's made over the years it's uh, you know it was just amazing how he just holds the camera and uh and just locks in on it <laughs> and has that kind of uh, that intensity without uh without really having to to go the extra mile and 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 the character you know he's got this centuries and centuries of history and he totally makes you believe it that that this guy has been around for centuries he's seen it all he's done it all he's done things he regrets some things that he probably should regret and at the same time he's still kind of a little delusional in um finding his heart's desire which is it, that kind of idea of the misguided villain is, is 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 one that's uh kind of easy to relate to i suppose and and so it uh you know he he's not a comic book character at all really in a lot aside from the fact that he has these amazing powers of kung fu and the and these uh, magic rings but yeah it's 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 an astonishing performance uh you know in the middle of a film that i th- i think you know is certainly a unique film in the marvel universe but maybe not one of their top tier films in the sense of it being a, a great film but i think uh leung really elevates uh, the material in ways that uh, I, I don't think a lot of people could have imagined yeah, and, and this is the thing Marvel does really well is cast. And yeah. They find like really great actors to play key parts and full marks as well to bringing in Michelle Yeoh, who is always a huge benefit to any production. She's also great here. But yeah, the, the things that, that they were doing here that they've done before in Marvel movies, the daddy issues writ large, a hyper-evolved hidden community, a central character with a sister who has a special gifts, the story t- challenges that leap directly from his having to come to grips with a sense of duty. You know, a lot of this stuff is myth, but it's also Black Panther. And uh, <laughs> and there's a like a bus, like a transit fight, which of course we just had a few movies ago in Captain Marvel. So there there are feeling although the the bus fight in this, that action sequence is A plus it did remind me of something we've already seen. So yeah, I will I will welcome a Marvel movie that takes a few more risks with the formula going down the road. And hopefully, you know, uh, Chloe Zhao's Eternals coming very soon, I think in like a month, uh, will do some of, of those things. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I would say, please see this. And, and a lot of people are, I gather it's a really big hit. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, and it sets up, of course, these characters who we like, which is great. You know, I, it is, as you say, it's not top tier Marvel. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing how they incorporate some of the stuff they set up in this film down the road. I, I hope that we do see more of this character and Aquafina as well as Katie, and and a great career for uh, uh, for Shimulu. Um, 
who is fantastic here. He's, he's, he sells the physicality of the character, but he also has this humility about him. I mean, maybe that's from being Canadian. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, he, he, he wins you over right, right off the bat. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not overly cocky, even though he's got these amazing skills that surprise everyone around him. And, you know, I think he, he sells the, the ordinary Joe part of it as well as he does the action hero part. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, let's talk about... Tony Leung and yes. Michelle Yeoh's, I guess, was it the first time they were in a film together? I I think so. I mean, I had a, had a browse of their filmography, both of them, and I don't know that they were in anything together before. Butterfly and Sword from 1993, directed by Michael Mack, script by John Chong. And uh, we watched a not great looking copy of this film. Well, it was yeah. a little rough looking. Uh, it felt more like 1973 than 1993. It's the case with a lot of uh, the films from Hong Kong. They, A, have not been terribly well preserved and B, not really made available in A-plus copies. So often uh, what you see is what you get. Yeah, yeah. And then the subtitle stuff, that's also a problem well, in a yeah. few of these as well. Uh, a lot of stuff is, is, I think, lost in translation. Um, but it, I had a pretty good idea watching the film, the character relationships. I very much enjoyed the wire work and the, the wuja action sequences. So much fun. Uh, and then I went online to read up on the film and get some more understanding of some of the plot details that I wasn't picking up. And it was like there was a whole other movie going on that I didn't get. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I think. I think in some cases there is a storytelling style that uh, and, and a storytelling shorthand that Chinese audiences immediately recognize that I might and, uh, you know, did struggle with. And I think that's just true of a lot of these films um, that that uh, but I'm, I'm enjoying the experience anyway, just because there's so much uh, action and, and adventure and uh, and big feelings and big characters. But uh, the crux of it seems to be that Leung is Sing, a martial artist living in the happy forest or part of a group of warriors called Happy Forest, which includes Sister Ko, played by Michelle Yeoh. Sing and Ko grew up together, and while she's in love with him, he's in love with someone else, the somewhat younger Butterfly, played by Joey Wong. Now, Butterfly's father was a warrior, and she's not in that world, but she doesn't know that Sing is an assassin. However, Sing has to go away on a mission for the local warlord to secure an important letter from another warlord, which likely means killing some folks. Um, and there's another warrior named Yip Chung, played by Donnie Yen, who's in love with Ko, but there's a young prince who hasn't yet, em yet embraced his responsibilities. There's a lot of subplots. Um, <laughs> oh, and there's another woman who grew up with Sing, Ko, and Yip, who's vanished for 10 years and who might be a sex worker living in another town and Sing encounters on his mission. Uh, so I, I thought the actors were all pretty good. The script has a lot of wit. Um, there's a lot of scenes where Singh wakes up again and again in different locations. And I wondered, it made me wonder whether they were watching dream sequences half the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Stephen, you've known this film for a lot longer than I have. What did you make of it? Yeah, this is probably my second trip to the Butterfly and Sword well. And it's, uh, yeah, it is pretty convoluted. Uh, you know, you, you try and stick to the basic concept of these two warlords who are at odds with each other. But of course, both of them have sort of, um, you know, other devious plans lurking beneath the surface, and and are playing, are um, are playing our gifted warriors, uh, Sing and and Co as kind of as pawns, as it were. And um, so there's lots of subterfuge and double crosses, and and a bit of romance, and and then the romantic comedy of of Sing and Butterfly, and her not knowing that he's in fact a 
you know, a martial arts assassin. And so it's, it's a, it's a pretty broad spectrum of, of modes from action to comedy to romance. And, and, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, I guess was just kind of the mode operandi for, uh, modus operandi for, uh, the Hong Kong studios at the time to try and reach as broad an audience as, uh, as possible. Um, and then, uh, you know, hope that the, uh, the action scenes kind of put it over the top with, uh, with a wider audience. And I find that the action scenes in this film are, are pretty incredible. There's a, there's a bamboo, uh, forest fight that kind of presages the one we'll get in, um, crouching tiger, hidden dragon, um, you know, uh, towards the end of the decade, uh, that's also winds up with a bunch of, um, you know, villainous uh, henchmen getting skewered by the bamboo uh, by the bamboo stakes, and it's uh, you know it's surprisingly violent at times with beheadings and people getting their faces cut off and all kinds of strange things that you think it's just going to be kind of a more standard uh, martial arts fantasy film, and yet uh, there's some some gruesome bits of. Uh, I'll say, well, yeah, gore. Uh-huh. Sure. Why sure. not? Why not go th- yeah. say that? And yeah. um, so, which, uh, but the, which is something I've come to expect from a lot of these films when I watch them, that, that they often go a little more over the top than I would uh, expect. And uh, this film does it as well. But um, if you can track down a copy, I, I recommend it uh, just, just for the sheer audacity of the film. I mean, the, 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 the action scenes are edited rather ruthlessly because uh you know just to make the the impact of each kick and punch and flip and every everything just have that much more immediacy and it's it's a style that uh it's it's not like the kind of the digital choppiness that we get in action films these days it's it's a more kind of organic um you know uh rat-a-tat uh, approach to uh, putting an action scene together but i i, I realized how much i kind of missed that approach because i just had not uh, watched one of these films in a long time yeah i absolutely agree and i feel like if there was something that shang chi could have used more of it was that kind of like physics defying action wirework stuff like at one point in the the fight you were describing in the in the bamboo forest um, a warrior throws a bamboo shoot as a spear, but their opponent cuts it lengthwise in two, which reverses the direction of the bamboo shoot, and the new double bamboo spear sticks in the body of two villains. <laughs> I mean, that kind of creativity is awesome. And it, it does feel like, you know, these films do feel like superhero movies. I mean, the way that we've accepted the powers and abilities of Marvel superheroes in Marvel movies, this kind of stuff just takes that for granted, that all of these assassin warriors have such a high level of understanding of martial arts that it, it brings them to something, you know, some, some other level, some, some incredible level. Well, they really are superhero movies, and um, we're not talking about them on this show, but like Michelle Yeoh's been in uh, – she's in a film called The Heroic Trio, which I highly recommend It's because it, it co-stars her, Maggie Chung, and um, Anita Mui, and uh, as, as kind of three basically uh, Hong Kong superheroes who have to – defeat uh, somebody's kidnapping babies. I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but, um, you know, it is basically a, just a, a superhero movie without a franchise, basically. They're, they're, it's not necessarily a kung fu movie. I think it's a little more modern day, but they still have superpowers. And, uh, you know, I think it was definitely inspired by comic books, even if it isn't directly taken from one. And she's in another similar film called Wonder 7. So, um, you know, so put, actually casting her and, and Tony Leung, who's in things like Ashes of Time and Eagle Shooting Heroes, uh, which are also kind of martial arts slash super powered kind of films, um, it, it's it's really kind of a no brainer to 
to make the leap to having them in uh, something like uh, Shang-Chi and the, the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yeah, and it's really good to see them in, in that film. And, and they are an addition, um, a joy to watch in almost any, I mean, everything we watched, I was so impressed by them. So really looking forward to talking more about their work. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And uh, we were talking about Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And for the rest of the show, we're going to talk about two of its legendary co-stars, Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh, who are wonderfully cast in the Marvel film uh, and bring so much uh, history and uh, charisma and screen presence with them to that film. But of course, uh, both of them have been involved in films for decades with uh, an amazing career of playing every kind of role under the sun in the um, very fast-paced and uh, prolific world of, uh, of Hong Kong and, and mainland Chinese filmmaking. Now, uh, there's far too many films from both of their filmographies to choose from, really, but um, it's, it's great to see that they're still going strong and still have that kind of screen presence. And Michelle Yeoh, in fact, uh, you know, of course, uh, was introduced to a large number of Western filmgoers uh, who weren't familiar with her Hong Kong work when she appeared in a James Bond film, um, which is uh, The World Is Not Enough, I believe. Is it no, the, tomorrow, no, never tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, I, as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, as, as kind of a, a, a Chinese secret agent who assists Bond um, platonically in uh, taking down a media mogul played by Jonathan Price, And then... Uh, was uh, used much more effectively in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by Ang Lee, and uh, also with the great Chiang and Fat, who was probably worth a show of his own at some point down the road. Mm-hmm. But um, well, yes, and uh, John Woo. We, were, we we need to talk about some John Woo movies. <laughs> yeah, like, I need to see Red Cliff, like the four-hour historic epic, uh, which I have a copy of and have yet to just uh, knuckle down and 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 watch it. And I can't wait to actually take a day and actually do that. But, um, but uh, Michelle Yeoh is still going strong, still, uh, you know, working pretty steadily. She did retire for a little bit in the eighties. She got married and, and uh, said goodbye to the screen. And then that marriage ended and it was time to go back to work. Uh, And uh, I think there was another kind of semi-retirement somewhere along the line, but she's, she's uh, picking up roles and can be seen uh, most recently in a Netflix action film, Gunpowder Milkshake, with um, Karen Gillan. She's in kind of a secondary role as one of these librarians in kind of a, where, where these uh, assassins kind of go and recharge and get new weapons and, and that kind of thing with um, I believe Angela Bassett is a fellow. Yeah. And Carla Gugino. Gugino. I mean, they're awesome. That's a great, I almost wish the whole movie was just about them. Yeah. More or less. It's, it's kind of a John Wick light kind of thing where everybody's an assassin and uh, the action scenes are played way over the top and and it's got this kind of knowing winking kind of meta humor about it and I certainly enjoyed it but it, it, it's it was all kind of all flash and and um, you know not much uh, beyond the sizzle I guess as it were and, and um, you know just uh, I just kind of coast on its likable cast and and some uh, some well-made action sequences but uh, I really feel it didn't have a whole lot of depth going on yeah, I, I think I liked it more than you did. And I think I liked it more than most critics did. I, I felt like thematically, the movie's literally about taking down the patriarchy with really big guns. Hard <laughs> not to love that. Um, and I did like a lot of the action sequences and that it was all shot 
in in Berlin, uh, there is an ingenious scene in a parking garage involving two BMWs and a bright red Porsche 944 that's worthy of Walter Hill's The Driver, I thought, with maybe a touch of Highlander in the decapitations. Um, that was fun. <laughs> but you're right. Um, you know, it's not a hugely memorable film. And neither is um, another movie that uh, Michelle Yeoh's showing up in lately called Boss Level. This is um, Joe Carnahan's uh, sort of time loop action picture, which is, is, is fun. It's got, you know, his typical sort of a slightly tiresome machismo in his, in his writing. But I got to say that there is a lot of fun to be had in this film. And, uh, uh, Frank Grillo plays this guy stuck in this time loop. And, um, eventually Yo shows up later, uh, basically as a cameo as someone who, the, who teaches him how to, to fight with a sword, which becomes important later. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it gets, it's like one of those movies actually gets better as it goes along and it use great use of time has come today by the Chambers brothers and foreplay long time by Boston on the soundtrack. So <laughs> that's the, one of the things I really liked about boss level. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, I mean, Carnahan has been around the block a few times and knows how to make an exciting kind of gritty action film that's, you know, more grounded in some sort of reality, even though this film clearly feels like a fantasy. But he he, he does sell the machismo and the, you know, the unshaven charm of Frank Grillo fairly, fairly well. And uh, cer- certainly I didn't feel like I'd wasted any time with watching this. It was quite enjoyable. Um to spend some time even though the the whole time loop thing is probably getting a bit tired at this point yeah. it seems like every couple of months there's a new uh v- variation on groundhog day but <laughs> yes, but uh yes but it, you know this this does some fun things with the concept and i didn't begrudge it that at all yeah um you know and uh it is just like you just plug Michelle Yeoh into the right role and she's awesome. And, and, you know, she has made some pretty big films, large budget films like Memoirs of a Geisha and The Lady, uh, though some of them have been more successful than others. I've recently enjoyed her as Emperor Philippa Giorgio in The Antagonist You Hate to Love in Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> I don't know if you're watching that show. I, I, I've not. I've, I've sort of been reading about it and I'm thinking um, I should probably dive into that a little bit. But, yeah, um, she's great in it. She's really plays a character she's kind of from the mirror universe and so she has this complete uh, she's just basically angry all the time and and although she's kind of a mother figure to our lead uh she's yeah it's a, it's a great role for her she's playing a, a character that we haven't seen sort of almost like a villain but a villain with a lot of likable qualities and she was also great in crazy rich asians and last christmas which we've spoken about uh, so you know she shows up all the time in western movies and it's it's always great to see her and she's a rare double player in the marvel cinematic universe because isn't she also a space pirate in guardians of the galaxy oh, that's right that's right yeah she has show up shown up before that is your 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 trivia sir is on point um but you know we should talk about some of her work from her days in hong kong action movies and uh you showed me a film <laughs> called yes madam from 1985 directed by Corey yuen who has come over to Hollywood and made his mark as an action choreographer and director on a number of big budget action films, particularly one starting Jet, starring Jet Li. I gather this was Michelle Yeoh's one of her first major uh, breakout roles, opposite '80s action star Cynthia Rothrock. Yo plays Senior Inspector Ng, a cop whose Western lover is murdered early on when an important microfilm he was in possession of is stolen by a couple of thieves named Aspirin and Strepsil, who with their partner... 
Panadol don't know what they've got, and a gangster, Mr. Tin, is on the hunt of the microfilm as it reveals his criminal activities. Uh, so yeah, another convoluted plot, another film with a lot of fun action sequences, and the fact that it's it's so 1985 with the <laughs> with the sort of synth score and a lot of of you know bright. Uh, pastel colors in the in the wardrobe. Uh, it was a pretty fun watch. I, oh, and mirrored sunglasses. I, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of the action sequences are nicely shot and edited. Lots of bone breaking stunts and more than a little physical comedy in the action thriller mix. So you know, again, all those elements that we you see in a lot of Hong Kong action movies that the tone goes all over the place. Um, cl- characters behave entirely clownishly, um, and where people don't really talk, they just yell at each other uh some of the acting is not awesome but it does deliver the thing that you, i think you come to these movies for which is those crazy fun action sequences yeah it does have three or four pretty great action scenes um my favorite might be the the chase scene through panadol's fairly tiny apartment and yet <laughs> yeah. he's able to move walls and open trap doors i mean it was very buster keaton-esque in the inventiveness of of how he's able to kind of manipulate the space uh in this tiny apartment and it should be pointed out that panadol of course the the trio of of kind of hapless and comedic thieves are all named after types of medicine aspirin is fairly obvious strepsil i think is maybe a throat medication it's, it's a british lozenge for yeah. your throat yeah yeah and then panadol is um kind of a type of uh, like aspirin or Tylenol or whatever as sold overseas. So um, I'm surprised there's nobody named Paracetamol anywhere, <laughs> anywhere in the film. Maybe maybe in the the sequel. But um, but uh, Panadol is played by Choi Hawk, the uh, the Hong Kong film director of of some renown. And uh, I think even in, when this was being made, he was already directing films. But uh, but he uh, he was also in these Mad Mission movies, which we'll have to watch one of these days. These um, this series of very comedic, very comic booky kind of. Um, action intrigue spy movies from Hong Kong that were very popular and and uh, and he always plays these kind of outsized uh funny but buffoonish kind of characters and and uh you know considering he's made some serious films and some very wonderful action and sword and sorcery sword and fantasy kind of films it's kind of weird to see him here just playing this rather broad character as the the forger but um you know he's a he's a versatile guy I guess and um and uh, just a, a weird little footnote but um you know, I found there's like an inventiveness to a lot of these scenes, uh, you know, with the way they use the, the sets and the, the props around them and that kind of thing. Obviously, the, the Jackie Chan, that's his stock and trade, but uh, obviously he's had a huge influence on all the action directors uh, around him in Hong Kong. And we see some of that influence here with the with the way that the fight scenes and the that certain vulnerability that the characters have, that, that nobody is really that invincible Um in these scenes, you know, people look, it looks like they get hurt and it looks like, uh, you know, that there's some uh, consequence to some of the fight scenes. And I, I like that aspect of them. Yeah. And I wonder if they're actually getting hurt. Like I wonder about the <laughs> well, safety for stunt people and actors on these sets. You know what I mean? Well, as we see with our next film, yes, they do get they hurt. They do get hurt. Yeah. Um, the one thing about, um, uh, yes, madam, that, uh, that struck me as I was watching it. I don't know if I ever saw a Cynthia Rothrock film when I was a kid. Like I may never have actually, I remember her. I remember the posters and I remember the visuals and how they sold them, but I don't know that I actually actually watched one of her movies. Yeah. I've only seen the stuff she's done in Hong Kong, but you know, based on like, I think this might be her first film appearance. And then, um, 
after this, uh, she became kind of a direct-to-video action star of, for for a brief shining moment in in the late '80s, early '90s. Was it shining? Well, okay. <laughs> I mean, no, no offense to Rothrock. She's actually really fun here, though she's obviously dubbed. Yes, well. and uh, you know, but she can match. She and Yo are are like you know amazing, uh, matching their feats of athleticism. Uh, athleticism are crazy off. Off the, like I am, I am fully impressed when actors can manage to be convincing as actors, but also do all those stunts. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like anytime Cynthia Rothrock kind of kicks over the back of her head, and <laughs> just like how does how does a human body do that? I don't even know. But um, you know, I, I guess she's still around. I mean, she was she was in. Like I'm looking at her IMDb right now, and there's stuff like uh, she's in some film that's in production now. Uh, oh wow, I didn't know that. She was there was something was it there's something about like I think she's playing up her own image in a film that gathers a bunch of sort of B grade uh, martial arts. Although something called The Last Action Heroes oh. uh, from from 2019, maybe that may be a documentary, but it, it seems like a uh, an interesting way to catch up. But she's she's. Yeah, she's doing voice acting. She's doing stuff in video games. I mean, she, you know, it seems like she's, she's never really slowed down, even though she hasn't really been in anything either mainstream or even kind of direct to direct to whatever wow. <laughs> lately. But she's she's still active, and who knows? Maybe she'll have some sort of uh, Kill Bill esque revival of you know, in, in something, some pop culture revival down the road. It'd be nice to see her yeah. turn up somewhere. Uh, well, let's talk about The Stunt Woman from 1996. This is another 10 years later, uh, directed by Anne Hui. And this is Michelle Yeoh as Akam, a young and keen stunt woman who gets an opportunity to work on a wuxia action film set by basically putting herself in harm's way, despite the danger, obviously, to herself, and impressing the director, Chief Tung, played by the legendary Sammo Hung. The first act of the story is basically her learning how to fit in with this misfit but collegial uh, film crew, as well as Chief Tung's irritating son, one of the most annoying kids I've seen on screen in a while. Uh, the, the sexism and patriarchal energy of the set feels quite authentic, if a little sickening. Everyone has respect for Chief Tung, even as he treats them pretty badly. Uh, but a lot of the drama actually comes from the film crew fending off the interests of local gangsters and getting into street fights, uh, actually making a film. If this is accurate to the experience, there's a lot more trouble to be had than just, you know, uh, uh, irritating, uh, uh, sexist, um, you know, uh, film executives and, and producers or what have you. Uh, and then the second act, we jump forward in time where Akam has taken a job managing a restaurant in mainline, Ch mainland China. And the entire tone of the film changes. It becomes more about her relationship with her boyfriend and the struggles keeping the restaurant afloat. Eventually, events conspire to send her back to the film crew with more dangerous stunts, which Yo clearly does herself. And then the final part of the film, not to spoil a, a 1996 film, but anyway, it involves one of those gang leaders crossing swords with Chief Tung and Akam having to go on the run with that annoying kid. Uh, once again, the tone changes and the gangster, uh, one gangster seems like he was inspired by the Joker in one of his yes. more his less threatening incarnations, dressed in purple, as are all his henchmen. Uh, you know, Yo is great, and there are parts of the film I like mostly because she's such a sympathetic presence. But otherwise, I wouldn't call it a good movie. It's kind of a mess. It is a mess, and then it's, it's too bad because I've been wanting to see this for a little while, and it, it turned up on uh, 
on iTunes slash Apple TV, whatever you want to call it. And uh, so, and in, in a lovely looking copy, which is rare for, for Hong Kong films of this vintage when you can find them. And uh, it's just one of those films I wanted to see for a while because I felt like it would be a chance to see Michelle Yeoh kind of playing a variation on herself or her younger self or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I realized it could have picked any number of her other films from this period, but they're so hard to find, uh, which is unfortunate. I, I mean, for example, like I wanted to see her, or, uh, I'd already seen it, but to, to revisit her sequel to Super Cop, a.k.a. Police Story 3, where she was teamed up with Jackie Chan. Mm. Um, and then uh, as, a, as a police officer from mainland China, teams up with the, the kind of rule-breaking um, you know, wild card that is uh, Jackie Chan's police story character, uh, and uh, which is a great film. Uh, if, if you get a chance to see it, uh, the, the version called Super Cop is actually cut. Uh, if you can find Police Story 3, uh, that's much more suitable. Uh, but uh, they brought her character back in a film called Project S, which was then dubbed probably cut and reissued in North America only on video as Super Cop 2 or, you know, but not Police Story 4. So it's a sequel to Police Story 3, but it's Super Cop 2. Anyway. Uh, not confusing th- at all. Yeah, not confusing at all. And um, <laughs> I got to see that actually in a theater um, in 35 millimeter at Fantasia in Montreal years and years and years ago and, and loved it. It was great to see it on a big screen with a crowd of Hong Kong action film uh, loving nerds like myself and uh, really wanted to revisit it, except uh, finding a copy is uh, pretty tough, especially when the one copy I found didn't have subtitles, which made it kind of difficult to enjoy, even though I could enjoy some of the amazing action films, like the sort of the hostage scene at the start of the film and so on. But so, but the ready, the ready availability of uh, the stunt woman to, bring it back around, um, made it a, an obvious choice. But it's And it was kind of sad that it was fairly disappointing, but not without merit, uh, just because uh, Michelle Yeoh is so uh, enchanting in the role uh, as the sort of the the, the young stunt woman who's uh, just trying to make it in the biz and and just trying to jump the tonal shifts of this film, of course, made it a little bit more frustrating because the down-to-earth real-life story was re- I found it really compelling, and, and this look behind the ramshackle world of um, sort of independent Hong Kong film production, um, you know, where studios rarely last terribly long, and you know, there's a fairly fly-by-night uh, aspect to a lot of the films that get made, and that part of it, uh, especially with Sammo Hung, who's another genius of, uh, of Hong Kong action films. Um, you know, anything involving him, he's he's very sympathetic as, as this guy is just trying to get the film made and deal with these crazy characters that uh, he has to contend with from film to film. Uh, You know, that part of it was so good. And then when it jumps to this kind of failed romance and then the the sort of contrived action plot, uh, you know, kidnapping stuff at the end, uh, you know, it was frustrating because I just wanted to get back to the actual story of this woman and, and, uh, you know, her trying to make it in the film biz, you know, as she goes on to, you know, she goes on to become a director when the the main director – can't uh, can't do it and proves to be very adept at it. And I was hoping maybe we'd see some of that. But I, you know, I have a feeling that this film was compromised at every level, probably by a director that wanted to tell that story and from producers that wanted a Michelle Yeoh action film. So uh-huh. uh, there's a lot of conflicts going on. But um, if you like Michelle Yeoh, I, I still recommend checking it out and just brace yourself for the, the hairpin curves that this film takes. Yeah, and we should mention that during the credit se- sequence, the filmmakers dedicated the movie to Yeoh, 
who was badly hurt while filming doing one of the stunts, as well as all stunt people in the industry, which to me felt a little bit like an effort not to get sued for shoddy safety conditions. <laughs> it made me wonder. Uh, you know, it, 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 the footage of her lying there in, in a lot of pain, clearly in a lot of pain, as the credits rolled, I was just like, I was just wincing watching like, what has she gone through to to have done all these movies? Like it, it was, um, yeah. I, I'm, you know, full marks to her, her all of her abilities, her physical, uh, her her acting chops, all of them clearly on display. But uh, but I, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how much, how many, how many days she spent in hospital uh, during her Hong Kong action movie days. Yeah, quite a bit, and I guess it's sort of telling that. A year later, she would be starring in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, and then a couple of years after that, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and from there on, it's it's mostly you know Western and Hollywood uh, productions, Sunshine for Danny Boyle, and and so on, and that she pretty much was able to get those low budget action films out of her system and move on to things with a little more prestige, where she was probably a little more respected and better treated. Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And on this third segment of our look at uh, the careers of of some key cast from Shang-Chi, we're going to talk now about uh, Tony Leung here on Lens Me Your Ears. Is he, question here for you, Stephen, is he China's George Clooney or Brad Pitt? Or some combination of the two. I feel like he's got both of those guys. He's got the suave, you know, likability of George Clooney, but he's also got that, like, really good-looking, like, you know, almost can play any kind of action guy that Brad Pitt brings. Uh, And he's a singer. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Or is he the Ryan Gosling? <laughs> Maybe he's Ryan Gosling. <laughs> um, he, he, uh, the internet reminded me that he won the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor for Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, which is a terrific film. Um, and he's known for a lot of his collaborations with Wong Kar Wai, uh, including Chung King Express, The Mood for Love, as I mentioned, The Grandmaster from 2013, which I haven't seen. I still want to see that. Um, we're going to talk about one of his most well-regarded collaborations with a great filmmaker, Happy Together. He he also appeared, again, thank you, Internet, this I didn't know, in three Venice Film Festival Golden Lion winning films, including A City of Sadness, Cyclo, and Lust Caution, directed by Ang Lee. I think we talked about that one when we talked about we the did, Ang yes. Lee episode of uh, Lens Me Your Ears. And he starred in the Academy Award-nominated film Hero, and of course, John Woo films, Bullet in the Head, Hard Boiled. And Infernal Affairs, which we will talk about on this last segment. Um, he, um, I should mention also, it's slightly confusing. There is another Tony Leung who works in Hong Kong cinema, which is why the Tony Leung we're talking about is often known as Tony Leung Chu Wai. I believe that's the reason. Um, but let's talk about Happy Together. And they're occasionally in the same film. <laughs> right. Just to make it that way. I think they're both in Ashes of Time, if I'm not mistaken. Let oh, okay. Me, let me just double check. I'm, An- I'm going to cheat Another here. Wong Kar, Wong um, Kar Wai film? 
Yeah, actually, the, yeah, both Tony Leungs are in uh, Ashes of Time, along with Leslie Chung, who is also in uh, Happy Together and Days of Being Wild. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they were in other things together because there's a lot of that cross-pollination in, in Hong Kong. But um, And uh, Ashes of Time is, is really worth your while if you had a chance, but we're not going to talk about that one today. No, let's talk about Happy Together from 1997. This is one of the Wong Kar Wai films. I've seen a number of his films. I hadn't seen this one. And uh, there's a new, there's a lovely box set. People are going to start thinking that that Criterion is paying us. They are not. But uh, I you know, wish they, they were. They, if they were, we could do a whole episode every every time on Criterion because there's so much cool stuff. Criterion, send us free discs. <laughs> yeah, we will talk about. I them. command you. Um, uh, there is a box set. <laughs> Let, a me Let me in the closet. Let me in the closet. Five minutes in the closet. Um, and uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, you should. If you're listening to this this show, you probably know what we're talking you've about. You've made it but, this far. You've heard of the Criterion Closet. Yeah, it's the closet where they have their whole library and, and, and actors and filmmakers go in there and just choose, have a bag, and they choose the movies they want and however many will fit in the bag, I guess. Um, and uh, anyway, from Criterion, there is a box set. And a lot of those films are available on the Criterion channel, which is where I watched Happy Together. It's a story of a troubled, sometimes violent relationship between two men who, despite being perpetually on the rocks, move from China to Argentina to start a new life. Uh, Tony Leung is Lei, who narrates the tale. He talks about frequently breaking up with his partner, Ho, played by Leslie Chung who is frequently unfaithful. This behavior continues when they move to Argentina, and so does the fighting. What struck me right away is Wong Kar Wai's gift with the camera. You know, it's something, when I don't see one of his films for a while, I forget how beautiful his films are. And then you watch one, you're like, oh, the aesthetics are just crazy. I remember when I watched Chung King Express and Fallen Angel for the first time, I was they were some of the most immersive films I've ever seen, like worthy of the world building of Blade Runner and some of Michael Mann films, the combination of visuals and music, it's just totally mesmerizing. And in this case, again, we the film starts mostly in black and white, but for the odd establishing shot in saturated color. But then it's, you know, I always was distracted by the style. It looks like, you know, black and white of Touch of the Evil or a Buddha Souffle. And then the color creeps in as we go along until it's fully in color. And I wasn't sure, I mean, aside from it being so beautiful, I wasn't sure what the thematic reason for that was. I don't know if you have any ideas about that. Steve. Yeah, because it's not like they're flashbacks or, or anything like that. Yeah. It's just um, it's the progress of time. Or yeah, something. I think so. And then it, maybe as the, the emotions become more florid and the desperation seeps into this relationship, then, then the color becomes more prominent, I suppose, especially in a city like Buenos Aires, where, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it seems so, you know, it seems sort of different and yet not different from Hong Kong or Taipei, mm. which we, we see sort of later in the film, but, um, lush and decaying. Yeah, exactly. It has yeah. that kind of, you know, that lived in quality. Um, it's kind of, it's almost European, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's very otherworldly. And, and Wong Kar Wai goes to great lengths to, to kind of seep us in that atmosphere. And it, it's quite amazing. I mean, it's definitely a film that you kind of live in as well as watch. You feel like you, you've lived a week and, or a month or whatever in Argentina by the time you've, you've ended this, uh, ended the film. And, uh, just a remarkable performances all around. Very, you know, maybe brave performances even because they're very emotionally and, and, 
physically naked in this film. And, uh, you know, I, I was trying to imagine a comparison. It's like, you know, imagine if you had a, a romance between James Dean and Steve McQueen. It's mm-hmm. kind of what it feels like between Leslie Chung. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that Tony feels Leon. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, with the, with the kind of raw emotion that both of them bring to the parts. And, you know, Leslie Chung uh, was, was a favorite of Wong Kar Wai's. He's also in Days of Being Wild, which... I watched for this show, and then it turns out that Tony Leung is only in the last scene, in a wordless scene, where he's just getting dressed and going out for the night, and apparently playing the character that he would go on to play for the whole film in um, in the mood for love in 2046. So it, it's, it almost acts as kind of a an introduction to that film. Uh, but uh-huh. uh, you know, and and it's also part of this. Uh, both the new Wong Kar Wai box and also on this uh, on the streaming service, but. Um, but but here uh, I'd seen this film uh, a number of years ago, and it was great to revisit this beautiful transfer compared to my rather grainy and hard to watch uh, Hong Kong DVD. This is a, a, a huge improvement, and uh, you know you know the the doomed romanticism that just uh, fills this movie is 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 so profound and 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 moving. It, it was really a real treat to watch it again. Yeah, I mean uh, the characters you really feel for Lai, but he allows a lot of. What happens to him? He allows Ho to treat him this way, and it just becomes. It's the film as we go along. He he begins to, I guess, realize that he'll just never be free until he's free, and uh, and it, that's and there's a lot of grief, and it's difficult to watch in places. But what a beautiful film! It's so potent. Um, we should move on as we are starting to run short of time, and we got a couple more films we want to talk about. At least uh, Flowers of Shanghai from 1998, directed by Hu Shuo. Quen, whose production company is called Triple H, which I appreciate. Um, he's got a substantial body of work based on this film. I'd really like to see more of it. Flowers of Shanghai is a Taiwanese drama about the relationships between courtesans in 1800 Shanghai in four different brothels and the wealthy men who are their patrons. Tony Leung is Master Wang, who has been a patron of Crimson, played by Michiko Hada for years. But then he starts spending time with Jasmine, played by Vicky Wei, and Crimson is very upset and sends her maids to beat Jasmine. Now, this is stuff that we don't actually see. We only hear about it off screen. There's a lot of storytelling within the film that where we hear about things that we don't see. Uh, Wang is very mysterious about why he's spending time with another courtesan, but he seems not to understand Crimson's jealousy. And Wang has promised to play Crimson's debts, but he hasn't yet. And meanwhile, we see other patrons visiting other courtesans with names like Pearl, Emerald, and Jade. And the tension becomes about the relationships between the men and the women and between the courtesans themselves. They have no power in these relationships, but they're completely at the whims of their patrons, but are expected to be moneymakers for their brothels and their aunts to pay off existing debts. They're basically sex slave. Despite all the mannered behaviors and fine clothes, the only way out is if they can somehow pay off their debt and marry or marry one of their patrons. Um, the film is entirely shot in studio sets, no exteriors. The camera prowls, but to create a certain sense of kinetics. But I mean, it otherwise could be a filmed play. I found it hypnotizing a mix of short scenes and long scenes where we fade in and fade out. Plenty of scenes of people just sitting and smoking opium where so much goes unsaid. I feel like it's a movie that might benefit from more viewings because I, I found it really, the relationship's really complex and I wasn't sure I got it all on, on one viewing. Yeah, I kind of went back to it after I watched it through the first time and then kind of selected scenes and and um, 
to try and kind of pick up on some of the nuances that I missed the first time around. Especially, you know, if you're trying to watch a subtitled film and take notes at the same time, it's can be kind of frustrating, especially <laughs> when, especially when a, f- a film is so densely packed with detail as this one is. You, you're definitely going to miss stuff, and um, you know it, it's you know it's a pretty intense portrait of uh, of a you know a vanished way of life, and you know a thankfully vanished way of life because you know these as you say these women have no power, and uh, you know the, if if they're fortunate and if they kind of play by the rules, they might be able to make enough money to win their freedom, you know, provided they don't spend all their money on clothes or get hooked on opium or whatever. And the chances of that happening are pretty high. So the the ability for them to actually buy their freedom, I think, is, you know, probably doesn't happen all that often. If they're lucky, you know, one of their patrons will fall in love with them and make them their second wife or what have you, as, as the film explains, and, uh, and sort of take them away from life in the flower houses. Uh, and... You know, so I, I appreciated the, the the look at that way of life at that time, and the the detail that um, that who who Shuan puts you know into every every frame of the film in in giving us what feels like an accurate portrait, even though it's a very stagey portrayal. Um, you know, we do feel like we're, like we're looking in the windows of these houses and 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 watching it all unfold. Yeah, I, the only question I really have is characters talk about violence that these limp women live with and the beatings by the mm. ants or from other je- jealous courtesans and the film trades on the threat of violence without ever showing it. And they don't obviously they don't show the sex either. So so it's an interesting aesthetic choice and it keeps everything at, at a remove. But I'm wondering about the morality of a film that takes such a deep dive into this world, but excludes those details. I think you could argue it's high minded that we don't need any of that to understand its effect. But then we see its effect in the intensity mm-hmm. of the scenes between characters. You could argue the film is either prudish or dishonest for keeping it all out of sight. And I, I think there's a larger conversation to be had about whether or not it's appropriate or not, you know? I, I guess it depends if you find the aunties themselves intimidating or not. I, they seem, you know, I mean, they're, they're a whole world unto themselves and, and, and a kingdom unto themselves. And I, I, I did find them kind of imposing and, and kind of terrifying. And then, and so I, I, I found it easy to kind of at least imagine in my mind's eye, you know, what they actually inflicted on the, the women that are in there quote unquote care um you know especially when one uh one starts lambasting one of the flower girls and you know didn't i bind your feet for you where's your gratitude it's just like you know mind blown like just what a what a different universe and and, you know it's and this is just like around just before the turn of the last century so it's you know it seems like an, an ancient kingdom but it's really not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. I mean, my grandfather would have been alive Uh when this was happening. So, uh, so yeah, just that it's another, just another lifetime ago. And, uh, and I just, uh, I just found myself kind of, drinking this world in as it as it unfolded yeah it's it's a really good film for sure i will want to watch it again sometime um now before we go we wanted to talk a little bit about infernal affairs uh tony leung's uh another great film that was adapted of course as uh and remade as scorsese's the departed now we spoke about it a little bit back in episode 25 we did a remakes episode um but uh infernal affairs apparently The actual Chinese title is translated as The Never-Ending Way or The Unceasing Path, which I think 
gets to the existential issues that are at play with this film. Of course, people who are familiar with The Departed know it's about, uh, you know, the uh, the cop who has infiltrated, you know, the, the crime organization and a mole from the crime organization who's working with the cops and, and that sort of duality. Um, but do you want to talk a little bit more about uh, Infernal Affairs? And maybe there was a sequel as well, as I understand. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we did talk about this a little bit. I hadn't actually seen it when we talked about, we were talking about remakes and we talked about departed and uh you know i'm i'm kind of kicking myself for for sitting on this film for so long there's, there's a there's a great uh three disc set uh that came out in north america of all three films good chance to see them in decent copies i'm not sure where they might be streaming hopefully somewhere but um you know i, I i've seen you know endless numbers of hong kong cop movies you know from hard boiled through any number of jackie chan films and and some of the, the ringo lam action films which uh, are usually fairly detailed and gritty police procedurals but but you know this really delves into kind of hong kong cop culture especially you know at the end of the 90s when the handoff is is imminent and that and the 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 odd kind of sometimes mutually beneficial relationships between cops and some of the gangsters, you know, who try to keep the peace in one way or another, you know, so the gangsters can do their low level business and keep the sort of the violent street crime that, you know, the average person is more concerned about at bay. And, uh, you know, I, I like the way that it, um, it portrays that relationship through the course of these films as, as, as we said, there's three films. The middle one is actually a prequel to the first one. And then the third one, which brings back Tony Leung's character and uh, Andy Lau, who is um, the cop who's really a mobster and Tony Leung's the mobster is really a cop, um, brings them back uh, for the third one where it's sort of, it's like a prequel and sequel at the same time where half the action takes place before the events of the just before the events of the first film and then uh the rest of the film is kind of immediately after the events of the first film and you know i, I just think that I, I find like the world building of of these three movies is is quite compelling and and quite detailed and doesn't have you know and, and is a little is done with a little more care than than some of the cop action films which just kind of give bare bones to the um to the nature of, of that world. And, and in this case, we're plunged into it and, and uh, into the, the idea of, of loyalty and um, honor and, you know, what it means to, to have some sort of legacy. And, and uh, I, I find the, the film does that very well. I, I don't, the filmmaking may not be as sort of operatic or as polished as, uh, as what we get in the departed. And, and perhaps the, the performances aren't as, as high caliber as, uh, as what we get in that film. But uh, I, I still uh, love the characters and then the situations they find themselves in. Yeah. It's, it's really this, the, for me, it's a sentiment that's a little hard to take in yeah, some of those movies. A lot of that. But, uh, but the action is super gritty and I love the Hong Kong locations and all of that. And of course, Tony Leung is, is next level. Thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, today's episode on Michelle Yeoh and Tony Leung, two great 
uh, actors uh, that we have had the pleasure of watching, you know, through the years, and uh, and it's it's great to be able to just sit down and watch a few of their movies. It all just made me want to do is watch more, <laughs> more than we Same can here. talk talk about in one episode of Lends Me Your Ears. Um, now, if you'd like to reach out to us, we have a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears, and Stephen, you have your own Twitter account. I do at ns underscore s c o o k e. Uh, mine is named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris. Thanks so much to CKDU for the use of studio facilities to record this show and for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And many, many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for making us sound cool. Uh, thank you for listening if you've made it this far, and we will be back soon talking about movies once again. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.